Our Father and our God, Lord, what a, a blessing it is to be part of your people, and more specifically, Lord, those people that you have redeemed, that you have changed our hearts and our minds, you've drawn us to yourself, and Lord, you have given us a desire for righteousness. We want to be more like your Son. And Lord, we are equipped by your word, and as we open it this morning, we pray that we would be increasingly sanctified through it and by it, that Lord, it would continue to convict us and grow us and mature us. And Lord, uh, your, your word never returns void, so we pray that it would be, um, uh, would find deep and uh, um, soil in our hearts and would continue to grow. And uh, we just pray that you would also help us to put aside the busyness of the week that we have had and the week ahead that we have worries that we may be distracted by. Lord, help us to uh, stay focused and to be expository listeners of your word so that we may grow by it and live for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning is uh, a message that has not really planned necessarily because of our meeting uh, next week, our business meeting and our budget and so on. It's something that we often teach, um, usually in our, our discipleship format or our Bible hour format. But I wanted to warm you up to this because it's something that we, we don't preach on often, and that is giving. We don't teach on it, and this is not, not because it's not important, um, but um, it's need to, it needs to be seen in its proper context. Often when a church preaches on the message of giving, it usually uses a battering ram or to manipulate you or to make you feel guilty. But we need to understand the idea and the principle of giving in Scripture is that of worship. It is an act of worship, and so it should be proclaimed and preached in that way. Um, so one of the questions we should think of when we're asking ourselves about giving is not how much. That is the wrong question. Um, or even for what purpose am I giving? Uh, you should know that. Or for what reason? The biblical question is a heart question, a principle of stewardship, not figures or amounts. And so what I'm hoping this morning is that we'll understand that God doesn't need your money. <clears throat> God doesn't need your resources. He can use them, um, and He will, um, but He doesn't need you as though God is in some sort of conditional relationship with the giver. And I think that's one of the misconceptions about giving that we often learn through these misappropriated or misunderstood or even false teaching around giving. These modern fundraising messages are on missions and these TV evangelists and so on, is that you, you need to give because God needs you to give uh, or He won't be able to fill, fulfill His ministry. But that is a pragmatic understanding of what giving really is. It's not so that God can achieve His plans. He will achieve His plans. God is always able to do that. He is sovereign over all things and He certainly will build His church no matter what we have in mind. And God has always been able to meet the needs of His people and has always been able to expand and sustain His church. Yet, often when people give, they do so because they think that God is in need. God is desperate. He needs our resources. He needs our finances. And we need to release Him to be able to do His work. That's almost a blasphemous view of God, isn't it? It certainly is pitiful. 
And I think it's certainly unbiblical. So we need to free ourselves from that thinking as we think of our giving toward the church. Know that God is sovereign. And in giving, you're really returning what is already His. God is not part of what we are doing, but we are part of what God is doing. In fact, we are blessed to be used in what He is doing and accomplishing. And, of course, these are things that He has ordained from the beginnings of time. So we are not even thwarting Him if we withhold so he doesn't need us, he needs, we need him. We often have this upside down or I would say even world-centered view of how God uses us. We have a, an over-inflated view of our purposes even in God's kingdom. And when it comes to giving specifically in the church, God does not measure the amount of your offering, but what does he measure? He measures the heart. He measures why it was given. And this is where I want to start on this, what I'll call a short series on giving, and that is the heart. And I'm going to start in an unusual place as well. You would think I'd be in 2 Corinthians uh, 9, which is Paul's very clear message on, on the intent of giving and uh, why we give. But I want to start rather at the end of Philippians and Paul's letter here to that church. He writes to the church to help them understand the Lord's commands and the contentment that Paul has, and the joy that they had in giving to him. They didn't surrender begrudgingly, but gave willfully, even in their impoverishment. So if you want to turn with me to Philippians 4, we'll start in verse 15. Actually, I'm going to start in 14, but the, the text this morning that I'll be preaching from is from 15. Here's Paul. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, that is definitely a heart of gratitude. But I want to give you a bit of context because, of course, we're starting kind of at the end of a book, unusual place to start. Uh, so, but I will be focusing on those. I'll be expand, expounding from that, that, that section but obviously you're referring to other letters that Paul has written, and of course Christ's words on giving as well. But for a bit of context, remember that Paul is writing this letter from his imprisonment in Rome. It's not a hotel, it's certainly not luxurious, uh, he is in need, but look at his gratitude. And he's thanking the Philippian church for the gift that they had sent him during, during also his missionary journeys and his ministry in that area, and also the gifts that were given to support other churches that he was able to pass on. <clears throat> now, Paul isn't very specific about what that gift was here in this context. It might have been a care package. It was obviously funds and resources for him to share. But it met a need that he had, and more. What we also know from this letter is that Paul was not depressed and moping about his circumstances in prison, all right, all, was he? He was, he was content. He said he was content. He teaches on contentment. And he's speaking from that condition of suffering in contentment. 
So he wasn't needing a pick-me-up. It wasn't like uh, some tea for him to help him uh, feel better about himself. There wasn't that kind of a, a gift to just make him feel uh, more connected. And that um, wasn't his purpose for writing this letter either. In fact, we know from his letter to this church <coughs> that he was satisfied in his, in his situation. And he was filled with gratitude even in his imprisonment for them and for their concern for him. Let's look at a few verses earlier in his response, in his letter here, uh, in, in verses 10 and 13. Here's what he says. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of, in, of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul here is saying he understands the secret. secret of being content and even satisfied during times of plenty, which is probably easy for us to relate to. But also he says even in desperate times, times of need and suffering and hunger. The secret is in verse 13. He is strengthened in Christ because he is in, he's content in Christ. Now, as you know this verse that uh, at the end here, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh, wow. That's probably one of the top ten abused scriptures, particularly amongst professing Christians. Obviously, it wouldn't be used by non-believers, but wow, it is tortured, Right? You often hear it read by athletes, um, or it's quoted by them. You know, I was, extra, I was able to jump that extra millimeter in the Olympics because of Christ. Or I throw that ball a bit faster, who strengthened me. This passage has been used sort of a celestial um, steroid uh, that you can tap into and then just do a little bit better than that next guy. But the context here is not about achieving any extra physical strength or endurance of any kind. It's about contentment in all circumstances, good or bad, that can only come from being satisfied in Christ rather than your situation. In fact, it's about being content in Christ even when you cannot achieve those things, right? If you don't run that extra half a second or jump that millimeter higher, you are still content. It's when you're unable to do well or unable to do what you wish you could be doing, you are content in Him because you can see past your temporal situation. And this is what Paul is conveying in his gratitude to the church. He says he wasn't seeking anything from them nor desiring to change even his situation. He was content. But he was also grateful for the love that they had shown him. He was no longer focusing on what would make him comfortable. He was obviously not comfortable. He was now rather focusing on Christ to be more like him so that he could be able to endure whatever may come and endure it with joy. And this is true of all believers. We are all commanded to be content. We should be striving to find satisfaction in Christ so that we don't demand anything else from our temporal situation. We don't demand from our families to satisfy us. We don't demand from our neighbors to satisfy us or even our church family to demand of them to raise us up or to satisfy our need. We need to be looking for contentment 
in our circumstances. But sometimes that is viewed then as permission, follow me, to not help meet the needs that we see in the lives that we, those people that we love. Because we want them to learn contentment. So I'll help them. Maybe when a brother in the church was maybe demoted at work or his new car died, you might have had this thought. Yeah. This is a good opportunity for a brother to learn contentment. And I think I have just the way to do that. I'm not going to help him. By that will be helping him, by not helping him. Um, <laughs> it'll be an opportunity for him to draw closer to the Lord as he suffers in this humility. He can learn to live with less. And that will be good for him spiritually. So actually I'm helping him spiritually by not helping him. Well, that's not the attitude at all that we should be gleaning from this. And I think we should be very aware that that's not at all helpful. You have to apply discernment, obviously. If somebody comes to you with a financial problem and they're living way beyond their means, that's a t- an opportunity for counsel, that's an opportunity for helping. Um, but that is an act of help. You're doing something. You're not just refraining from being involved, right? And we should know of a need in our church and a desire to meet that need. Now it is true that we should be striving to be content in our circumstances, even content when things are difficult. But we should be discontent when we see the suffering of others. So it works both ways. You need to learn contentment in your situation, but you don't demand that of others, that they be as content as you are. You should be discontent if they're not content. If they're suffering, if they're in need, that should bother you in a, in a way that you want to help them. should encourage you is maybe a better way of putting it. And that's what Paul's explaining in his letter here. Even though he was content, he's saying it's a good thing that they had a desire and have met his need. And that's what he means in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share in his trouble. He was in trouble. He wasn't doing hard things, and they did come and help. He didn't ask. He was content with what he had had. He was resolved. And he had learned, of course, that secret of contentment. Yet he writes to the church to thank them for sharing. So Paul, he's giving, obviously, praise to the church here, even though he didn't ask their help. Because this is the Christ-like desire that should be increasing in the life of all believers. To be... Sorry, discontent when it comes to the need of others, and more specifically, the, the saints in the church. But let's go back to our text. <clears throat> let's go through these passages and start in verse 15 and 16 to see what this looks like. Actually, let me put this closer. 15. And you Philippians yourself... Know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. This is an amazing example of, of, of uh, love offering. And it's a, it's a heart offering, because there's a genuine desire to see Paul relieved of his suffering, to be supported. And... Not only did the Philippian church give when no other church did, he says here, and then again. So it was repeated. 
And you might think, well, some churches are just like that because they have the resources, right? Um, they have more money and they have more means that then they can give more often. And then you should be expected for a wealthy church to give more often. And that's probably what's happened here, right? But that's not at all the church in Philippi. They were not wealthy. They weren't part of a wealthy denomination or network. In fact, by the standard of their day even, which is a pretty low bar, <clears throat> Paul describes the church as extremely impoverished. Look at 2 Corinthians 8. Well, I'll just read it just for the sake of time. To see here how he describes the churches in Macedonia, of which where uh, Philippi, Philippi was a part, Philippi. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So in their impoverishment, they're begging to be helpful and to be used. So this disposes of the idea that this is a generous church because they have overflowing wealth. Um, and that's not to say that wealthy churches don't give. But Paul, in this context, is praising them for their unique generosity in their impoverishment. They had very little to give. This means... Because they had very little to give, um, they had to give up so much more, give up more of their comfort. They had to give from the heart. Rather than helping out of pity or wealth or convenience, they helped out of a genuine love. They gave because the Lord had given them conviction and a desire to be generous, even in their, their meager means, and not just from what was left over. So Paul is not thanking them because they had tossed a few silver coins from their bounty. This is a body of godly saints that had come together prayerfully and committed to Paul to give out of their impoverishment. They gave up much more and blessed because of that. Now it's clear that you can't give what you don't have. If you're absolutely impoverished, you may not have. So their generosity wasn't some kind of miracle where they're able to give out of their poverty and still be fine and live as they were and unaffected by that contribution. No, they, they assessed their impoverishment and out of that still gave generously. And Paul makes a point of highlighting the example of generous, uh, genuine generosity because they didn't have this large pool to draw from. So they had to make a very prayerful and, and uh consideration to take from what they had, and yet they did, knowing that they would have less, knowing that they would suffer personally because of it, and then they did it again. It wasn't a once-off thing. They weren't coerced into doing it. Prayerfully decided to give sacrificially, and then again. And verse 15 gives another indication of their giving. They not only gave sacrificially, there was an urgency in giving, right? And you, Philippians yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving, except you only. When Paul was finished in his missionary journey, the first one, in the beginning of the gospel, he says, that means that when he first started, and he left that region of, I guess, Greece, called Macedonia, the, the first church to respond, to support him, was these saints. 
And Paul mentions in his letter of thanks <coughs> to encourage them in their, their desire to respond sooner rather than sort of deliberating and maybe um, prioritizing other things. He mentions specifically to that church that they were the first to respond. And he can thank them for this eagerness, uh, their generosity. He didn't have to come and a second or third time, it was the first time. They saw it and they responded straight away. And it was this support that Paul was receiving that allowed him to travel and to minister in other places, including Corinth. <coughs> if it wasn't for their gift, he would still be making tents in Macedonia. We know this. We know this is the case um, in his letter to the Corinthians. If you um, don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll read from 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, Or did I commit a sin of humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Wow, so he's now freed up to minister because of the church, of this, the support from this impoverished body of believers. The context of this passage is when Paul was ministering out of uh, Corinthian, he was, he was at that time making tents with Aquila and Priscilla. Um, but then later in Acts 18, verse 5, we read that things changed. He no longer had to work part-time, and he could fully devote himself to the gospel ministry. In uh, Acts 18, verse 5, he says this, when, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, from that church, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Now, some translations put it this way. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. And so, what changed? Paul still needed to live. He still needed to eat. He still needed to feed himself. He still needed means. But when Silas and Timothy came from the Philippian church, they brought with them this offering. And this allowed Paul then to devote himself completely and solely to the work of the gospel without having to spend his time or divide his time with tent making. He was freed up to do what he was called to do. And this is confirmed again in, in, in 2 Corinthians 11 where he does rebuke the church. This is how he puts it though. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Now, Paul is obviously not a masked bandit here. He didn't sneak around and rob churches. This is a figurative term. I want us to clarify that. It's not literal. He didn't uh, run around like that as a cat burglar. What he means is that other churches who benefited at nothing from this carried his burden because they didn't. The Corinthians were benefiting from Paul's ministry to them, but it was being supported by other, even more impoverished churches. It would be like John MacArthur being supported by a church in Kailicha. I mean, maybe not quite to that extent, but you get the picture. Why can they not, and why did these others? Well, firstly, they probably saw the value in his ministry, his calling. And they are responding out of joy and love for his ministry to them. And this is why Paul had such high praise for that church, in their poverty, they gave generously, which allowed them to minister to other churches in that area and beyond. 
they gave extremely sacrificially toward him with no expectation of benefiting from that. That's the part that is remarkable. And they gave joyfully knowing that they would be suffering because of that generous giving. So this is so countercultural, isn't it? Even in many churches today with all the wealth that we have available to us. I know in Canada and in the U.S., there are peaks of giving, peak times. And you know when that is? Tax time. Because the people who quantify their income for the year and the deductions, and it's all done on paper and pen and a calculator, and then they can tell you exactly what they're going to give to the church because that's the amount that the government will refund them. It's a calculation. Sometimes it's a lot of money, and you might say, well, that's very generous because it's a lot of money. But it isn't, generosity is not measured in the number, is it? It's in the sacrifice. To be sure, a wealthy person giving that amount, it can be substantial, and it does great things to the ministry of the church. But I wonder how influential, and I wonder how prosperous the churches in those countries would be if this system didn't exist. They couldn't write it off as a tax deduction. And this is the difference between quantity and generosity. One could be at no personal cost, but have a great number behind it. The other is a very heavy personal cost, but maybe a small figure. And it's often given anonymously. I know I'm digressing a bit, but when Rachel and I were in Canada at, one of our, at our conference there, we had an opportunity to meet some of the movers and shakers of a big Baptist church. We didn't know them up until this time. And how did I know they were big movers and shakers? Well, because they told us they were big movers and shakers. They uh, made a point of telling us they were big donors. Uh, they had no shame in sharing their tales of supporting this thing and that thing and building this school and this hospital. And, and you know why they said that? Without any shame. Because that makes me feel good. I give because I feel good giving. You remember that? <laughs> it, was a, it was a teachable moment. <coughs> I'm not sure that it was well received. But what he's saying there is that there should, there should be no expectation of giving. What he's saying, this person, this big mover and shaker, is you shouldn't expect to get anything unless I get something back. Maybe it's in the form of gratitude or thank yous or recognition of some kind. But if that doesn't come... Neither do the funds. That's not sacrificial giving. That's conditional giving. I would even call it selfish giving. Anyway, it's not the attitude at all that Paul is trying to portray here to the church and teaching on what giving is about and what is it. It's to bring glory to God. That means it has to be anonymous. They gave, the church gave knowingly they may never see the benefit themselves, but gave because of the Lord working in their hearts. In fact, Let's look at verse 16, we want to go back here, where Paul also thanks them for the support before he left. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And this shows, again, a desire that they want to be a blessing. They had eagerness from the Lord that is only from Him to, to bless Him. So there's a spiritual desire to be generous, not a tangible, measurable recognition from others. It's not to be pleasing to man, but to be pleasing to the Lord. And they gave repeatedly. Paul says again, once and again. This shows that it wasn't just a spontaneous situation they were put in. 
on the spot, quickly make a decision, and then just deal with the consequences later. It was a prayerful, thoughtful, planned, conscious desire to help. And it wasn't fickle. This is the opposite of giving under compulsion. Giving because you feel pressured to give. And that is very common when you see these TV evangelists. Oh, if I don't get that Falcon 9X jet, I won't be able to minister to seven people um, across the globe. You're put under pressure constantly by that kind of um, messaging, I'll call it. Or maybe because of peer pressure. Maybe someone has emotionally blackmailed you into giving. You see this a lot in Cape Town. Just wander the streets. You'll be, you'll be asked a few times. And it's, um, it's an emotional response, not a biblical response. It's sometimes giving is done to just assuage a feeling, to maybe, or even to create a, a sense of well-being about your own generosity, or to silence a guilt that might be there. But Paul is speaking of the motive there of the heart. In this, in this passage. And we know this from also 2 Corinthians 9, which is where most people would expect me to be preaching from, which is a very well-known passage. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but God loves, what? A cheerful giver. He makes it clear. We are not giving biblically when we're giving for any other reason except joyful sacrifice that we have done so in our heart. We've decided, we've prayed through it. We want to give solely to honor the Lord, which means it doesn't glorify us at all. And this is the kind of giving that is characterized in this church. They were not compelled by desperate requests to give at all. They didn't give begrudgingly or in a once-off way. They gave cheerfully, sacrificially, and frequently. Verse 18 gives us a more insight into this. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Now some read this verse and think, well, Paul's just writing contentment. He's happy. He's showing he has to write something, some form of gratitude when he writes, I am well supplied. That phrase, I am well supplied, just might be, it's enough. Thank you, but I'm all right. I'll, I'll find more elsewhere. <laughs> And some interpret this as Paul saying, I'm good. No need to send more. But, <clears throat> but um, Paul, he was content. We know that. And he teaches that believers need to be content. So we might read into that. But I think his wording here conveys more than just that a general gratitude. And even though we don't know the amount that the church sent, Paul makes it clear that they exceeded in giving. This phrase here, I receive full payment. And uh, this is translated from the Greek word epeko, which means to hold back or to receive to the limit of what one could expect, to give it a long <laughs> definition. So Paul's not just giving them thanks for what they, they could give, but thanking them for giving more than he could carry even. He clarifies this by saying, I received full payment and even more. So it was on top of what he needed. He's well supplied. And well supplied in the Greek is plero, and it means to be completely full to the top. Or 
if you want to look at it in, in the saturation term, it's totally saturated. So this means Paul isn't just displaying polite gratitude for the gift. Yeah, thank you. I can't. He's saying he cannot take any more from this impoverished church. Please, thank you. No more. I can't hold any more. It's overflowing. And he's grateful to them because they gave to glorify God, not just to top up a knee. So this is the picture of the Philippian church. They gave quickly, joyfully, and, of course, sufficiently. And Paul writes this letter of thanks to the church so that we might know what this picture of biblical giving looks like. The first criteria is this. Giving needs to come from a joyful heart. Secondly, it should satisfy a practical and a measurable, tangible need. Not just an emotional, whatever happens to be in your pocket, but a thorough, thoughtful, meaningful giving. And lastly, we should, shouldn't hesitate. Don't deliberate too long if there isn't desperate need that you know of. So giving biblically means it isn't done to satisfy yourself or to relieve any guilt you may have or to soothe a conscience that you are trying to silence. It is done because God has already changed your heart and changes the way you see your own possessions, the way you see your own comfort and contentment. And in most places, I would say, looking outward, helps you be discontented in others, in the condition that others might have. So that's the picture of giving. Now, I want to look at now the benefit of giving here in verse 17. Now, not that I I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Have you thought, what is it? I think we have a general idea what that means. Increases to your credit. Paul's phrase here is related actually to verse 15 above, where he also mentions the church that he says this, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now here Paul, I think, is explaining the other side of giving. We should... Uh, we know it should be done for His glory. We know it should be done joyfully, uh, without compulsion. Um, or as Paul reminds the church, to give as one has decided in their heart. There should be a thoughtful and prayerful purpose in giving. But Paul here is saying that the gift itself isn't what he seeks at all. He's saying here, but he is seeking a blessing for the church. What he calls Fruit that increases to your credit. The word fruit in the Greek here means profit. Uh, It's toward your account, but it's literally translated fruit. But the meaning that he's trying to convey here is that they are receiving spiritual profit by their giving done in a God-honoring way. The fruit here is also eternal, which means Paul isn't focusing on the value of the gift that he's, he's received, but rather the benefit that they are receiving spiritually. And this demonstrates that Paul is more interested in their reward than his benefit uh, practically. And that's biblical contentment. And it's also a Christ-like display of giving for God's glory. So he's grateful for their support, of course. But he's even more grateful for their spiritual profit and their increase in fruit. So the blessing comes from giving when the desire is that God would be honored. This is a genuine fruit that is stored up for eternity as our reward. 
And the treasure that is stored up, of course, is unlike any account that we can relate to. We are used to accounts diminishing in their uh, interest or bank charges or theft or fraud, whatever it is. When this is stored, it remains stored. And Christ even explains this principle in Matthew 6.19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure, treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And likewise, Paul is grateful to the believers because they were adding to their eternal treasure because of their grateful and generous offering for his sake, for God's sake. Paul said something similar regarding this principle in Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now to be sure, there are, there's always going to be rich people in each age, but I can assure you that if you have a car, you have a home, I would even say just a roof over your head, that you are there reliably and you have food each day, that you are in the top 5% of the world. So you are the wealthy. You may not feel that way at the end of the month, but you are, in real terms, wealthy, historically speaking. So Paul here is speaking to most of us. We should not be holding on to or counting on our riches to bring us any hope in the future. Our only hope is the treasure that we store up in God's account. And Paul's gratitude is that Philippian church was investing in their eternal account because of their generosity to him. It's a treasure that will not perish. Now, the next point, verse 18 and 19, is the principle of giving that I'll call that, um, the, the phrase that I will use. It's a principle that he shares to the church. He says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, we know that Paul was offered so much to the point of overflowing. He couldn't take more. He was full. But he wasn't focusing on that uncommon generosity because he didn't even quantify it. He just said it was overflowing. He explained that his gratitude for them is because of their God-honoring giving and that eternal treasure that they are blessed from. He points them to their gift-bringing glory to God. And uh, even though he was obviously pleased with the gift, he is showing them their blessing in the giving. And he gives thanks to the Lord for their fragrant offering as, uh, that is an act of worship, in a sense, <coughs> even though he was a beneficiary. So this kind of sacrificial language should trigger something familiar in your mind, right? It's a familiar passage in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, Paul says, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? 
your spiritual worship. Paul here is using that same sacrificial language to demonstrate that to the Philippians. Um, that what they had done for Paul is actually an act of worship in their giving. Because there was no expectation of anything back. When you worship to God, you're not expecting something in return, I would hope. Because that's not worship. That's bargaining. They gave as an act of worship because they only gave to glorify God. And that's God word giving. That's what that is. Um, you do it for His glory alone. And your left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So worship is more than just singing in church um, and sitting under sermons. I'm, I think you all understand that. And when you give your offering, it isn't given like it is sometimes taught. If you're giving an offering, it isn't given as a thank you for service rendered. Please don't view it that way. Um, I know you sit under a service and you're receiving, I suppose, a service, which is, I don't like that vocabulary, but it's used. This is a preaching service. And so service rendered, uh, what, how do I quantify that? Am I giving as a thank you? No. It isn't given practically either. You're not giving just to keep these lights on. That's not why you give. The lights do come on because of giving, but that's not why you're motivated to give. The Lord can do that with or without you. Your giving, firstly, is an act of worship. And if it's given for any other reason than that, it's not a fragrant offering, as Paul's saying here, because it isn't pleasing to God. So when giving is done out of gratitude to God and joyfully done so, because of what the Lord has done to, for you, that is an act of worship, and that is honoring to Him. And here's the principle in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pause for a second on that passage. It's one of those motivational um, Christian posters that you see, right? <clears throat> Another abused bit of scripture here. God will supply my every need or every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Often misapplied or misunderstood. It's a catch-all phrase for any blessing you might get. But Paul isn't saying to the church, the more you give, the more you'll get. He's not saying that um, in that temporal treasure sense anyway. He's not saying that. Um, because some read this verse as though God is a cosmic ATM. And if you, if you press the right pin, you'll receive. And that pin can be giving, um, being even seen giving. Um, being honored and praised by men. Well, now God owes you something because you've given. But context, to understand this passage is key, the context here is Paul is speaking about the genuine believers giving from a, a transformed heart of gratitude. And God rewards that, the heart, not the amount. And there's a condition here as well, right? According, there's an, according to His riches, in glory in Christ Jesus. That means he will meet needs of the believers, but not necessarily their wants. It says, according. <coughs> Sorry. Let me go back to that passage. Supply every need of yours. It doesn't say wants. So that could be financial or tangible things, or that could be tremendous spiritual growth and maturity, and contentment for the believer. Or it could be both. 
But it will be from Christ. And it will meet your need. And you will know it's from Him. Because you'll be satisfied in Him. And whatever that need is, it'll be met. And if indeed you give, is the other condition. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. The principle of giving means that God will add to you, supply your needs, but also add to your eternal riches in glory, if given for His glory. So when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he was clarifying the same principle in, in uh, second chapter of, um, sorry, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, just quickly, briefly, we're nearly done. Um, but before we read that passage, it's important to just give a quick, quick bit of context uh, in Paul giving counsel to this church. Um, before the offering is collected for the churches in Jerusalem, that's the, the context here, Paul uh, wants the church to understand primarily the motive you know, in this collection that he's being, that, that's being taken up. And he's sending, he says he's sending some brothers ahead of the offering to make sure that their hearts are in the right place. And he says this about their motivation in their giving. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. That's quite a dichotomy. Very different words used there, right? A willing gift or an extraction. Those are very different uh, terms and obviously very different motivation. If your giving is an extraction, keep it. Because we're not going to rob you to minister. God doesn't rob you or need your money for us to minister. And Paul is explaining that giving to meet a need is not the point. He says that yes, you are a church that can give and you, you can meet needs. Yes, you can. You can meet targets and, and bless others. But if that offering is given as an extraction from the wallet rather than a joyful, sacrificial act of worship, there's no reward. And then he explains the sowing and reaping principle in verse 9, in 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. In verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase, the, increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now that is a long passage and there's a lot to extract there, but there are just a couple key points. A very important statement here. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. One of the principles here is that if believers have a desire to give, and to give as an act of worship, God will supply what is needed to give. He supplies what you give. Because what are we giving when we are offering? Have you thought about that? (laughs) 
we often think of it as our own earning. Um, but what we are giving is not our own possessions. It's not our own riches. All we have is supplied to us by God. And what we give in return when we offer is His own supply. And God will give you that supply abundantly when you are generous with those resources. And when we desire to be generous, He loves reflecting His generosity. Not for gain, personal gain, but for His glory. And in verse 20, I think summarizes the, uh, the purpose here of giving. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, some read that this is a normal doxology. Paul's ending a letter and, of course, giving God the glory even in his apostleship. Um, like he does with other epistles. But here, there are some final greetings after this verse that tells us it's not necessarily a normal doxology here. There are some final greetings there later. <clears throat> and I think what Paul says in this verse is directly related about the giving that he's talking about in the previous verses. And this is why he's... That means I have ten minutes, but I won't need ten. <clears throat> this is Paul giving praise to God for the truths that he's just been teaching. That he's just laid out to them in terms of their joy in worship and giving. And even in the supply that God will reward them with in their needs. And so he, he says thanks and gives praise to God for his loving and overflowing a generosity towards his people so that they can be generous even in their impoverishment. So Paul recognizes the source of all we have and to whom we really give when we give sacrificially. God is a recipient. Our account, our account is credited. Now there are many faulty and unbiblical views of why believers give to the church um, or to ministries. Just to highlight a couple, because I, I think it's important to just quickly, and each one of these could be taught on, but I just want to mention them just to dispense of their views. There's the, the prosperity gospel view. And that says this, that if I give, I will get. That if I give riches, God will give me more. Then there is also the, which we've, we've preached on before, um, the social gospel gospel. Uh, or social gospel giving. Now, what does that one say? That gospel believes that we have to fix the problems of the world. The poor, we have to make rich. The, the sick, we need to make healthy. Socially, we need to restructure and fix the problems of the world. That God needs our funds so that those things can be fixed in the fallen world, which is not why we give. And then there's the, of course, the hypocritical giving. Uh, giving that brings glory to the one giving, which I think has been addressed already. But all of these are unbiblical, and I will label them selfish giving. Paul says the true gospel instructs us to give so that God would be glorified. And that's what he says here to the church in, in the Corinthians as well. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God 
because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. We don't, we don't give to be recognized, but we do it so that others would give glory to God. Have you thought of that? That even if somebody spots you giving or being kind or donating, do it in a way that they would also see God being glorified in it more. Use that as an opportunity to show them it is for Him. And Paul is making the point to the Corinthians here that when we are recipients even of your generosity, they, they will um, also be glorified and benefiting, uh, sorry, rewarded by God because of the confession of the gospel of Christ and in the overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And this is, this is why we give. It is, it of course, it's good for the beneficiary to receive. We know that. Um, but it's good also that we, that we give, um, how do I describe it? It's good for our hearts, let's say. It's good that they receive. It's good for our hearts that we give. But our motivation can't start there. Otherwise, there is no worship. If it's only for the receiver to be relieved of something, that doesn't glorify God. It's for us to feel better about relieving. It's of no eternal value. But if we give so that the left hand doesn't even know what the right hand is doing, and we do it so that only God is glorified, then there is blessing. And Christ says this in His message about salt and light, Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when we give for any other reason than to bring glory to God, and of course out of gratitude for what He has done, we give with the wrong attitude. That is the only attitude that is acceptable to God, and that puts treasure in heaven. And um, I mean, Christ gives us many examples of giving the wrong way, which I won't review. You're familiar with uh, when you give to the needy, you don't sound a trumpet, and, and those passages are very clear, because that is your reward if you do it. And our desire should never be to be praised by men. And when I hear people say that they love to give because it makes them feel good, I remind myself that that is the reward right there. That's it. That feeling, which will pass, and probably be replaced by guilt later, that is the reward. But when you give in secret, and only God will know, and only God will reward you, that is the treasure in heaven. So, I hope you've understood a bit. This is a, just a, a foundational message. Uh, we will pull more from this later. Um, something more specific on the, on the, I won't call it the doctrine of giving, but the, the motivation that God is glorified in our giving. And I hope you understand that it's an act of worship. And if it isn't an act of worship, it's not giving at all. Yes, you may part with something. That's true. You may feel good about even relieving a need. Or you may feel that you've done your part, quote-unquote, to keep God's ministry going. But that isn't giving. And when we give, we need to know what we are giving. We're really just conduits of what God has given us. It's His resources. And that is what it means to be a steward. Have you thought of what that word steward means? A steward doesn't own anything. A steward is simply tasked with managing resources well. 
And we are stewards of all that God has blessed us with. And man, we are blessed at a time like living like this. At a time in an age of this wealth and prosperity. But it belongs to Him. So when you give, do so with an acknowledgement that you are simply returning back to what God has gave you, given to you to be a steward of. And may your motivation be an expression of your devotion to God, that you give for His glory. He doesn't look at the amount. He does not calculate a percentage. He only weighs the heart and your desire to give Him glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the abundance of an encouragement that we find in Your Word. Lord, uh, these are sometimes controversial topics, but Lord, as we understand, giving is a natural response from a, a grateful heart. But Lord, even in our, our transformed hearts, we often give for personal or selfish or ambitious reasons. But Lord, we sometimes are, we give as the world does, to be seen by other men. But Lord, help us to repent of that. Help us, Lord, to, to even give little, um, as long as it is decided in our own hearts that you are glorified in that. Lord, help us not to be um, held to certain standards that are worldly or expectations that are man-made, but Lord, that you would examine our hearts, Lord. Help us to see that you will bless us uh, as your people and as individuals as we give as an act of worship and give for your glory alone. We pray this in your name. Amen.